Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim and Ben Edgington. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. This episode is sponsored by Unique One Network and MIMO. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, your weekly show about Ethereum and Ethereum 2.0 development, hosted by yours truly, Christine Kim and Consensus's Ben Edgington. Ben, fun fact, did you know that the inventor of Ethereum, Vitalik Buterin, was once denied an internship at Ripple Labs for visa issues, and in that same year, he started development for Ethereum instead? Hey, Christine, nice fun fact. History could have been very different, couldn't it? I think I have read that somewhere. It was probably in Cami Russo's book, The Infinite Machine. Uh, have you read that one? I have not. Oh, you must read that. Great book, really good history of Ethereum from the early days. There's a couple uh, with the DAO hack thing, anniversary, five-year anniversary. I, I have to mention, I think it's Matt Lysing's book, Out of the Ether, which is the story of the DAO hack and his hunt for the DAO hacker himself. And it's quite a racy read. So I recommend that while we're on uh, book reviews. Both are really good books. Definitely. I want to start our shows off with these fun facts or something about Ethereum that will catch people's attention. Like you said, history could have been very different if Vitalik started to become part of the XRP army. But luckily <laughs> for visa issues, he, he started development for Ethereum instead. It's on my list. I wanted to read Cami Russo's book on Ethereum, but I just have not gotten the chance to. Definitely both good reads. Any other book recommendations on the topic of cryptocurrencies? Any that you've read for Bitcoin or other coins? There isn't that much out there, which I would recommend. I'm a bit of a, you know, I like a bit of history. I like a bit of the story of things. I particularly enjoyed both of those that I mentioned, Out of the Ether and The Infinite Machine. Haven't read much else. I mean, we're in it, right? We're making history at the moment. You know, we're living through it. Reading Reddit and, and Twitter is enough for me. But I, I wonder what's going to be written in 10 years' time about all this. It's going to be quite a story. 100%. And one of the things that I think will be a big part of Ethereum's story is the way that it starts to implement this change to its fee market, EIP-1559. I wanted to prepare something a little bit more price-related to Ethereum for the show today. But instead, moving into our market segment for the show... We're going to talk about the Ethereum fee market because EIP-1559, that upgrade, which we've talked about multiple times in this show, has finally gone live on the Robstent test network. And on Robstent, it looks like about over 88,000 testnet ETH was taken out of circulation that is burned as a result of EIP-1559. And the base fee, which is this new mandatory minimum fee payment required to send a transaction on Ethereum, that on Robston was trending at about 100 guay. Oh, the reason why these figures kind of stand out to me is because if Ethereum is anything like the test network of Robston, these figures suggest that there's some pretty big changes coming to the network. I mean, first off, higher transaction fees. Like I said, it was 100 guay the last I checked for Robston. And on Ethereum right now, without EIP-1559 implemented, 
the recommended fee price for the fastest transactions is somewhere around 50 guay. So that's double the amount. Um, and for those of our listeners who don't really know what guay is, guay is just one billionth of an ether. That's usually the unit that is used to talk about fees on Ethereum. And then the second is is just how much ETH is actually being burned. It, it appears as though just under 30% of all new coins being issued on Robston is being counterbalanced by the burning of the base fee. So every single block, you've still got 2.5 ETH being issued. It, wait, it's not 2.5, it's 2 ETH. You've still got 2 ETH per block being issued. And then you've got about 30% of that actually being burned, taken out of circulation. So. The total supply of ETH is technically still growing under EIP-1559, at least on Robston. So these are some early figures, some early things on what we can expect the fee market of Ethereum to start, what we can expect from the Ethereum fee market once EIP-1559 goes live. I thought that was pretty interesting. I think the uh, the first thing to say is it's working. This is the first uh, deployment of 1559 in the wild and it is functioning as it was intended to function. So this is this is really splendid to see. I wouldn't take any metrics from Ropston too seriously for a couple of reasons. One of them being that it's a testnet and it's deliberately being spammed with transactions. People are trying to push the boundaries, trying to break it, really putting 1559 through its paces. So the activity on Ropston doesn't really resemble the mainnet in, in that respect. And also Robston ETH is free, right? I mean, it is costless, so it's testnet ETH. So, you know, sending a, a million transactions costs nothing except a, a bit of time. So it differs from mainnet in, in that respect uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, how do you see the sort of EIP 1559 delivering on its promises, Christine? I think the big question will be, do wallets and do users find it easier to transact on Ethereum after EIP-1559? So especially for DeFi, decentralized finance applications and for high frequency traders on those applications, do they find that knowing what the base fee is and being imposed this kind of minimum mandatory fee, does that make operations a lot more smoother? And that I think is less of a quantitative question and more of like a qualitative, like opinionated, mm. how many people are actually enjoying this and getting benefit out of it. I guess the one way that you could use a metric to quantify that is seeing how many transactions on Ethereum after EIP-1559 is activated, seeing how many of them are formatted according to this new fee structure. Because as I understand, you could still use the old format and just not get all of the efficiency benefits of EIP-1559. And if we find that a lot of users are still using the old format. We know that EIP-1559 has not been effective for the target users or target stakeholders that they wanted it to. Yeah, we're definitely dependent on uh, wallets and apps to upgrade and to implement the, the features. It should be easier for them in the sense that, that there is some predictability around gas estimation now, which has long been a sort of an issue, a challenge for wallets and people interacting with the network but yeah it, it looks like it should work as advertised i'm hopeful <laughs> one of the things i'm actually worried about is once ethereum 2.0 and ethereum merge once ethereum becomes a proof of stake network and issuance of ether goes down dramatically it's no longer two eth per block it's just a very small percentage of interest on staked eth once rewards go down to that extent. And we know that on Ethereum right now, 
judging from the Robston test network, which we shouldn't take too seriously, but judging from the fact that, you know, over 88,000 testnet ETH was burnt, are we worried that the supply of Ether might too dramatically start to shrink under Ethereum 2.0 proof of stake? And I mean, developers, it's really hard to predict exactly how much ETH will be burned because that depends on, you know, network activity, demand for block space, which fluctuates all over the place as, as we've seen with transaction fees already. I mean, a concern that I have is whether the supply decrease, the burning mechanism might be too effective, just too fast and just burn too much ETH than, than is, is healthy. Yeah, that's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, Ethereum's often criticized by the, the kind of hardcore monetary policy people for not having a supply cap, but I've not heard a criticism we might burn too much <laughs> uh, before. The supply to validators should be about one eighth or one tenth of the current supply paid to miners. So the issuance of Ether through validating the chain paid to the maintainers of the chain goes down by a factor of eight to 10 under proof of stake. So after we've done the merge, and then it's just a question of how much EIP 1559 burns. And I don't think anyone's got a feel for that. And one of the challenges is even in the last 24 hours, gas prices for Ethereum have been between five gigaway, five guay, and 500 guay. Just in 24 hours, they've fluctuated by a factor of 100. And it's kind of hard to model that with any accuracy at all. So we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, definitely good things will, will come of this. It won't harm the network in my view of things. Yeah, all bets are off. We'll see how it performs in, on main network and, and how EIP-1559 actually does in practice. For those of our listeners who are going to be following up, EIP-1559 was activated this past week on Robson, but this upcoming Wednesday, it's going to get activated on another Ethereum test network, Gorly. And I think after that, there's a third Ethereum test network, Rinkaby, that it's going to be deployed on before we see it live on Ethereum. So, There's so many blockchains and NFT marketplaces these days, and none of them work together. Introducing Unique One Network, the easy way to build multi-blockchain DeFi-enabled NFT marketplaces, where instead of picking your favorite blockchain, you let your users and creators pick for themselves. Powered by Polkadot, Unique One Network lets you service NFT creators and collectors across art, photography, philanthropy, gaming, finance, and more. So do yourself a favor and head over to uniqueone.network now to learn more. That's uniqueone.network to learn more. Looking to exit the volatility of crypto, but don't want to deal with the inflation of the dollar? Minting PAR using MIMO DeFi is exactly what you're looking for to get ahead of that. PAR is the number one Europeg token on the market, minted at an incredibly low 2% interest rate and backed by collaterals like Ether, Bitcoin, and USDC. Stabilize your portfolio, open a vault, and access the power of blockchain through MIMO protocol today at MIMO.capital. That's Mimo, M-I-M-O, dot capital. Uh, let's move on to our tech segment. What do we have on the agenda for today, Ben? I thought it'd be interesting to talk about a question which just keeps coming up. So there's this, it's a perennial, hardy perennial, this one, um, which is why is the stake per validator 32 Ether? Why isn't it smaller? You know, 32 ETH when we were 
designing, the beacon chain was worth a lot less, uh, maybe a, a few thousand, a small number of thousand dollars. Whereas today, well, it depends on what, what day today is, but uh, now it's worth perhaps over $60,000. And this is a, a huge fluctuation. So a question came up in the Ethereum Foundation Ask Me Anything event that took place on Reddit last week. Uh, and a question came up, is there any plan to decrease, to reduce the 32 ETH stake per validator? And uh, it was quite an interesting discussion. I think one of the, the facts is that this 32 number didn't come out of nowhere. It, it's a, the result of a compromise. Uh, on the one hand, you don't want it to be too high because you discourage people from staking. You limit it only to uh, the whales and the people who have uh, huge amounts of ether. But you can't have it too low, because if it's too low, you get too many validators on the network. What we want is for a beacon node to be able to handle on very modest hardware, like a laptop, uh, the whole load of the beacon chain network, which means up to a few hundred thousand validators. If we ended up with a few million validators, then that would put too much load on the beacon nodes, the beacon chain maintaining nodes. And that would mean that not everyone would be able to run one of these, and that would also be a problem for decentralization. So there's a sort of a happy place, which happens to be around 32, we reckon, where we can get a few hundred thousand validators, not too many, not too few. So that, that's the kind of logic behind that. What do you think, Christine? Do you think we should reduce the 32, or what are the pro and con as you see them? I think when you say that the sweet spot is a few hundred thousand validators as opposed to a few million, that depends on how much the 32 ETH costs, right? So if, if we're expecting ETH price to jump from its current level of $2,000 to say like 6,000 or even 10,000 as a result of this fee burning mechanism and also as more value as decentral, the decentralized application ecosystem on Ethereum grows, then I think in order to meet that target of a few hundred thousand validators, it's going to be harder and harder for individuals to, to become validators the more expensive 32 ETH becomes. But on the flip side, I do think that in the crypto space, we know how notoriously volatile crypto asset prices are. So while ETH price could jump to 10,000, it could also jump back down to 5,000 over the course of like a day. And just constantly changing the 32 ETH threshold for validators in accordance to the fluctuations of the crypto markets, to me, that doesn't make sense. And it also kind of frustrates me as like an Ethereum user or stakeholder in that it seems as though the design of certain protocols on the Ethereum network we're never really designed for longevity sake. It was like, oh, this seems quite nice right now. This seems like what we should do right now. But then when circumstances changes, when situations change, there's this conversation of, well, maybe we need another hard fork to deal with this issue. And it does seem like a never ending story of just hard fork after hard fork after hard fork that at some point there's just no stability to the protocol because a certain solution was introduced in 2000 and what are we 2020 that seemed to make sense in 2020 but fast forward to, to you know 6 months later and already there's these questions of we don't think this protocol is going to last we have to make these updates to it and so i, I think it's a, it's a criticism on the part of like ethereum 2.0 design that 6 months later you guys are already thinking about you know whether or not our protocol is going to 
be safe or like really, you know, stand the test of time. And it's like, it's, it, we haven't even gotten through a year, man. <laughs> like, Yeah, I don't think people really thought about ETH at $2,000 like a, a year ago. <laughs> so, you know, even or 4,000 as it was, you know, not very long ago. That's fair. In, in a sense, though, the, the actual dollar price of ETH is not that relevant to this discussion because it's about the total number of ETH that are available and the total number of validators we can sustain. Some of the responses from the EF researchers were interesting and suggesting ways that we might look at reducing in future to maybe 16 ETH or 8 ETH uh, with a view to bringing on more validators to enable us to run more shards. So we're planning 64 shards and you need a lot of validators to keep this secure because the validators are split between the shards. So we're planning 64, but the, you may recall that the original plan was to have 1,024. Uh, I don't think we'll get there again, but we could, in principle, if we had more validators, have more shards, which means more data availability, which means better rollups, which means more throughput, which means uh, everybody happier. There is some idea that we might reduce it in future. As a client developer, it scares me because the engineering involved in changing this number is immense. I mean, it's a massive re-engineering of the protocol to change this, this one number. You can't just change it to 16 because what about all the people who've already got 32 ETH state? They now have to have two validator entities and it just, what a nightmare. So it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But meanwhile, if you don't have 32 ETH, there are and there will be more options to pool uh, your stake with others. So decentralized staking pools are coming. And I think to some extent will alleviate this, this pressure. So I think that'll be quite good. But even on the topic of decentralized staking pools, I mean, when Ethereum 2.0 was created, it was not created for staking pools. It was created for individual stakers. So even the protocol, there are things about the protocol that need to change such as I think it was like address formats or something like that to enable trustless staking pools that just hasn't been created yet, will require a hard fork to create. Developers are now considering debating how to go about enabling decentralized staking pools. Again, another example of just we're six months in and there's just oh. so much about the protocol that we need to change. Oh, we love our hard forks. Um, I think, you know, in my defense, I'm getting, going to get all defensive now. <laughs> in defense of the developers, this is complicated and you want to do the simple thing first and build up from there. And we're, we're not scared of hard forks. Ethereum has always had this history of protocol upgrades. In a way, it's the responsible thing to do to start with the minimal viable prospect like the, the merge and strip it back to the basics and then layer on top of that. So. That is a plan. Having said that, the protocol has been designed from the beginning to be friendly to multi-party computation. And maybe we should talk about this another time, but we have this shared, secret shared validator protocol, which will allow very nice trustless staking pool infrastructure. And people are working on that now. And the protocol has been designed from the bottom up to be friendly to doing this. So uh, well, you do have valid criticism. There, there are some things we did right, <laughs> in my view. No, I love it. And this is a great segue into our final show segment, which is our community segment, where we kind of talk about things that aren't quite tech related, things that aren't quite markets related, but just related to what's happening in the Ethereum community, what's happening in the Ethereum ecosystem. And on the topic of decentralized staking pools on Ethereum 2.0, not quite 
being ready for the big leagues yet. These decentralized staking pools, some of which are live already on Ethereum 2.0 Beacon Chain, they're not quite as popular as centralized staking pools. And one of the biggest trade-offs is custody of your assets, custody of your private keys that basically allow you to withdraw your stake from the Ethereum 2.0 network. Withdrawals are not currently enabled for any validator on Ethereum 2.0, regardless of whether you're an individual staker, using a decentralized staking pool, whatever, what have you. But in the future, when withdrawals are enabled, this will definitely be a topic of conversation that's a bit more pertinent. But some, some particular staking services have already lost their ability to withdraw their ETH, even at a future point in time. I'm quite sad to report that cryptocurrency staking platform StakeHound is in quite a bit of a pickle. Cryptocurrency staking platform StakeHound, they've reportedly filed a lawsuit against crypto custody provider Fireblocks for negligence. A Fireblocks employee allegedly did not protect or back up the private keys to a digital wallet containing StakeHound's Ether and accidentally deleted that whole digital wallet. The lawsuit filing said, quote, the defendant irrevocably lost access to the plaintiff's digital assets, which were deposited into an e-wallet provided by the defendant, causing the loss of 38,178 of the plaintiff's ETH coins. That's a lot of ETH. Fireblock said that in their defense, they were under no contractual obligation to store or back up the private keys of StakeHound for their ETH, which in fairness, the private keys are of a very special type and format known as the Bone Lin Shaikam. Am I saying that right? <laughs> Bone Lin Shaikam solution or BLS solution. And Fireblock said in a statement that they did urge StakeHound numerous times to back up their BLS keys with a third-party provider, but discovered, you know, in April later on that, that StakeHound had never done so. So this is an ongoing legal case that is stirring up quite a lot of questions around ETH 2.0 key security and custody. Ben, you being the expert on BLS keys and solutions, tell our listeners a little bit about the uniqueness of that key structure, why it's so hard to custody, and why it's even the one that you guys chose for Ethereum 2.0, when clearly it's very difficult for, <laughs> for custody providers to custody. It's kind of hard to work out the rights and wrongs of this, and I guess it'll come out in the wash. There's definitely a lot of finger pointing going on. I'm struggling really to understand what, what went wrong here, but uh, let's summarize. So when you put down a stake on ETH2, you need two keys. One is your validator key, which is online, and it's used to sign all the blocks and the attestations that you're making on the ETH2 network. I've no reason to believe that, that that's lost. It seems like StakeHound have access to that and their, their validators are running. You also generate a withdrawal key. Today, that's no use whatsoever. But when we enable withdrawals on the beacon chain, you will use that key in order to send a transaction to the beacon chain and exit your, your stake so that that can get sent to a normal Ethereum wallet. Now, in the early days, we only had this Bono Lin Shackham a BLS scheme in place, which is a cryptographic signature, which we're using extensively within ETH2. And you know it's very familiar to us ETH2 developers, but it's not really very familiar to your average staker or holder of Ether. It has different tool chains and different wallets, and it's just not really a mature technology. 
We have since changed that. So you can now use an ETH1 address as your withdrawal credential so that you can just use your standard ETH1 technology and wallets and everything. So that workflow has, has changed and people can register an ETH1 address now and don't need to mess around with this BLS key. But early stakers were, were forced to use this and it seems like the unfamiliarity of these workflows and the unavailability of kind of standard custody solutions for the key has caused some problems, which is regrettable. Having said that, it's not that hard. I mean, it's like 32 bytes of data. I mean, that's all that you have to kind of look after per key, which is, you know, not very much. And so it's not really that hard to keep it safe. So I'm a little bit surprised by, by what I'm hearing here. But yeah, it sounds like a mess. I think that it was primarily a communications issue. Like Fireblock thought that Stakehound was the one that would be responsible for backing up and taking care of the keys, the private keys, whereas Stakehound was under the impression that that is the service that Fireblocks would provide as a cryptocurrency custody provider. Fireblocks was the one that would handle the key custody of the Ethereum 2.0 assets. And so I think primarily it was a communications issue between the two. But outside of that, I think there is also the reality that Ethereum 2.0 custody is different and is algorithmically structured in a different way than normally for cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. And so I'm I'm curious to know, is the reason why Ethereum 2.0 developers like yourself, Ben, is the reason why you guys use BLS keys, is it because it's more secure than the traditional ECDSA signature scheme? Is it because BLS keys are just a lot more easier to work with on the protocol side? Tell me a little bit about why this new model was adopted. Mm. Yeah, the BLS key is the single innovation that made the beacon chain possible. Without BLS keys and the properties that they have, we would not be able to run a network this big, this efficiently. What they allow you to do is to aggregate signatures from many parties. So you've got many validators, they're in committees. You might have, say, 150 validators in a committee. They all sign off on an attestation. And instead of having to deal with 150 separate signatures, we can aggregate them all into a single signature that represents the signatures of all those validators and we only need to deal with this single aggregate signature. And it, it's a huge reduction in the computational complexity and communications. And without it, you know, it just would not work. So in short, that's, that's why we adopted them for ETH2. We had thought there would be a different account mechanism for ETH2 than, than there is in ETH1, which is why we had this BLS withdrawal key mechanism. That's changed with the merge and all of that. Everything will look like ETH1 accounts, you know, for the foreseeable future. So that's why we, we, we changed it back. The, the interesting question, Christine, I mean, it seems a bit premature for anybody to be suing anybody because withdrawals are not available to anybody yet. So they're not available to Stakehound, right? But they're not available to anyone. So they're kind of assuming that with this lost key, they can never recover that ETH. And I think they'll probably not be the only people in this situation. I think when withdrawals are enabled, people will come to try and execute their withdrawal and they'll be thinking, okay, I know I should have saved something somewhere, but I didn't. I'm now stuck. So there is a discussion on E3Search forum about potential ways the protocol could allow people to withdraw using their 
sign-in key, their, their online validator key. That's a bit hairy because you're breaking the kind of trust assumptions about custodial staking and so on and who owns the stake. Maybe there'll be something like you can withdraw using the validator key, but only a year after you've stopped validating. So there's a year for somebody to come in and, and claim the, the stake uh, using the withdrawal key. Uh, and that allows enough time to you know, make sure that the ownership is correct and so on. It is complicated, and I, I don't want to get into a kind of parity funds recovery kind of discussion that would be unpleasant. Right. Well, I mean, what you're saying, though, is with the parity fund recovery, only one major user or actor on the Ethereum network had lost money. Whereas in this situation, you're saying that there might be multiple validators, many different users who have lost their keys um, out of negligence or out of just simply, you know, a, a disagreement or a miscommunication with their custody provider that will need access to their ETH and that developers could potentially change the, the key scheme to open back up the possibility to gain access to their funds, even without that key you're supposed to be holding in cold storage, but using mm -hmm. the key that you have that is constantly online and being used in order to fulfill your validator responsibilities. Like you said, that sounds like a very hairy solution given that mm. uh, part of the security of validator funds comes from the fact that you can only take your funds back out with a key that is never online. Or if you choose to put it online, you're putting it online at your own risk. Yeah, exactly right. So I don't want to anticipate how this might play out, but I just wanted to note there are conversations going on around this and it is recognized that this this might be an issue coming up so yeah watch this space <laughs> definitely watch this space that's it for the show you guys thank you so much for tuning in be sure to join us again next week for another weekly roundup of all your markets tech and community news related to the ongoing and active evolution of the ethereum blockchain if you have any questions you would like answered on this podcast you can connect with each of us ben and i on twitter our handles are in today's show notes give us a shout out. We'd love to hear from you. You can also subscribe to our newsletters. I write every other week in What's New in ETH2, which you can find at eth2.news or follow me on Twitter, and I'll let you know when the next edition is out. Christine's newsletter called Valid Points comes out every Wednesday, and you can find it at coindesk.com. See you all next week for mapping out ETH2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be. Bye all. You have been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This episode featured Christine, Kim, and Ben Edgington. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Tide Electric. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service, and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com.